Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. A very newsworthy episode this week. First, J. Scott Miller is going to fill us in on what we'll see in the night sky during the month of March. Then we'll hear Laura Tanner tell us about the locust swarms that are attacking crops in East Africa this year. And then we'll end up hearing excerpts of a C-SPAN interview with a leading epidemiologist about the new coronavirus from China, COVID-19. Well, let's get right to it. Scott here. March brings on thoughts of spring, officially starting soon. Astronomically, the first day of spring in the northern hemisphere is defined by that moment when the sun appears to be exactly over the equator. That moment this year is on March 19th at 11.50 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. But most calendars are happy to list the date as March 20th, which is good enough. Of course, this also means that the sun rises directly in the east and sets directly in the west giving us about 12 hours of darkness and 12 hours of daylight at this time. This might be good for folks that need that extra amount of daylight, but if I want to go outside to view the night sky, it pushes that back a bit, and that will continue to be pushed back even more as we head to summer. For right now, it isn't too bad. Heading outside about 7.30 in the evening during the first weeks of March, one object tends to catch the eye. Well, possibly two during the first week of March anyway. The moon will be spotted in the eastern skies as darkness falls during that first week, but Venus has been eye-catching in the western sky. Venus has been moving out from behind the sun since earlier this year and is now almost as far east of the setting sun as it can get in its orbit. The date when that maximum is reached is actually March 24th, but between now and then, only one doing keen angular measurements could tell the difference. Until now, Venus has seemed to linger in the evening sky, setting well after darkness comes. But once it passes greatest elongation, it will seem to set sooner and sooner after sunset. I imagine flying well above the solar system and looking back to understand why. Venus is moving closer to Earth in its faster motion around the Sun. This means that from Earth's perspective, Venus will begin to appear to be closer and closer to the sun's direction. Since it is now able to move so that it can overtake and eventually pass us, to us it will seem to be setting sooner and sooner after the sun sets. Thank you, Copernicus, for giving us this understanding and working model. With darkness coming on, more stars begin to appear. As I am facing west to watch Venus, I might as well see what constellations I can find there. Most notable because the stars that make them up are relatively bright, and the figures seem to reflect their namesakes, are the constellations Taurus the Bull and Orion the Hunter. Taurus is a bit higher in the western sky than the planet Venus, so Venus provides a good marker for seeing where to start. The V-shaped cluster of stars, called the Hyades, now look like a right-side-up V and marks the face of Taurus. 
Aldebaran, the bright reddish-hued star, marks the end of one arm of the V. Though it would seem to be part of the cluster, it is about half the distance between us and that cluster, almost gives one a 3D aspect of the night sky. If I extend the arms of the V upward a bit more, two more relatively bright stars are seen, marking the tips of the horns of Taurus. To the right of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. This group appears to be tighter than the Hyades, and with good reason. They are even farther away from us, further adding to that 3D aspect of the nighttime sky. To the left of Taurus, more around to the south in the early evening, is Orion the Hunter. The three stars marking a belt around his waist first catch the eyes. Two bright stars above mark his shoulder, two below his knees. A line of faint stars just below the belt stars marks a sword tucked there. The shoulder star that is left of the two is Betelgeuse. It has been a star of interest to astronomers lately. Betelgeuse is usually one of the brighter stars in the night sky, but over the last half dozen months or so it has noticeably dimmed. Now Betelgeuse is known to be a long period variable star, but the current dimming was much more pronounced than some previous observings. Further observation indicated it might be recovering, so it will continue to brighten. For the moment, there is no definitive explanation for this departure from the norm. Only further observation will tell us if it is heading back to its normal, regular variability. The belt stars of Orion can be used to point westward to Aldebaran and Taurus, but can also be used to point eastward toward Sirius. Sirius is the brightest star in the sky for two reasons. First, it is relatively close to us at distance, at about 8.6 light years. Second, it is a star much hotter than the Sun, and thus more luminous, about 25 times more luminous than the Sun. Sirius is only about 70% larger than the Sun in diameter, so that does help in terms of surface area for which to emit light, but temperature and closeness contribute best. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, the Big Dog. With a bit of imagination, it is not too hard to put together the stars of Canis Major and see a dog. Just above Sirius is a triangle of stars, all of about the same brightness, marking the head. Below Sirius are several stars that could be imagined to be the chest and front legs of the dog. Below and to the east of Sirius is a relatively bright star marking the end of its back, while stars below this second star could be the back legs of the dog. Beyond this second star, more down and to the east, would be stars marking a tail. It takes a bit of practice, but it can be done. In early March, the moon can be found in the eastern sky, but so can some of those constellations traditionally considered springtime constellations. Almost directly east and above the horizon is Leo the Lion. Leo is another constellation that, with a bit of imagination, can be seen for the figure it represents. One might first look for a group of stars that look like a backwards question mark, or maybe a sickle. The bright star at the end of the handle of the sickle is Regulus. Regulus and the sickle mark the chest and head of the lion. Closer to the horizon is a right triangle-shaped group of stars. These mark the hindquarters of the lion. In most depictions, it is pictured as a lion reposed in the sky rather than walking not too different from the male lion I have seen at the zoo in past visits. Finally, in the northeastern sky, I can spot the Big Dipper. In fact, one can almost imagine using the handle of the Dipper 
to bring the dipper down onto the head of the lion. Definitely something I would think about doing if a lion were to, say, poke its head into my tent while camping. Shoo, lion, shoo! As I have said in past podcasts, the end stars marking the bowl of the dipper are the pointer stars. A line to the lower one, closer to Leo, to the upper one, and extended, reaches Polaris, the North Star. Ever steady, located at the same angle above the horizon all night and all year, it provides one with the direction north, and thus by extension, the other directions along the horizon. Something predictable in what seems to be an ever unpredictable world, somewhat calming as I now go back inside after a brief tour of the night skies of March. Thanks, Professor Miller. Now we have a special report about the locust insects that are swarming in eastern Africa. Have you heard about the threats raised by these marauding desert grasshoppers? Well, we're fortunate enough to get this timely report from Laura Tanner about the potential food crisis hitting this region, already one of the most impoverished places in the world. Take it away, Laura. Hi, Benstalk listeners. I'm Laura Tanner, a Benstalk fan, and thrilled that I've been given the opportunity to contribute to the podcast. And before I get started, I have to give a shout out and a big thank you to Dr. Dave Robinson. Thanks, Dave. And without further ado, East Africa is suffering the worst desert locust outbreak that parts of the country haven't seen in decades and are struggling to suppress a rapid growing infestation. And for months now, the locusts have been ravishing the countries in the Horn of Africa, devouring food crops and devastating pasture for the animals. They began gathering in eastern Ethiopia and northern Somalia in June of 2019, and the locusts were carried in by the wind from the Arabian Peninsula. And each day, more and more of these pests slip over into Ethiopia, joining a mass of insects so large it's been compared to the city of Moscow. And each pack contains hundreds of millions of insects, which can travel more than 95 miles a day. And Kenya has been hit the hardest. One enormous swarm recently over northeastern Kenya estimates to contain nearly 200 billion locusts and occupies a space in the sky three times the size of New York City. In Kenya alone, there are dozens of these swarms. Somalia and Uganda also have been battling swarms that have the potential to reach the size of major cities. And other countries in the region that are being impacted are Eritrea, Djibouti, South Sudan, and Tanzania. And Congo is the latest country to be invaded, marking the first time the locusts have been seen in the Central African country since 1944. And swarms have been spotted as far as the southwest coast of Iran. And the locusts are carried in part by wind, which allows them to travel such long distances. And these migrating pests are marauding through approximately 930 square miles and growing at a rapid rate daily. And there is an alarming threat to food security and livelihoods in the countries where people are already suffering from a severe hunger crisis. And according to the experts, climate change has contributed to this outbreak. The last five years have been the hottest on record and 20 of the fastest warming countries globally are in Africa. A warming Indian Ocean means more powerful tropical cyclones hitting the region. And between October 2018 through October 2019, there were eight cyclones, and that was a record number. 
A cyclone late last year in Somalia brought heavy rains that fed fresh vegetation to fuel and feed the locusts. 2019 was one of the wettest years ever in East Africa. And according to the United Nations, one square kilometer sized swarm can eat as much food as 35,000 people in a single day. So imagine a swarm that covers an area the size of Manhattan, and this is hardly even considered big for a swarm of desert locusts, and that swarm can eat the same amount of food as the entire population of Kenya, and that's over 50 million people. And the efforts to control the infestation so far have not been effective. An aerial spraying of pesticides is the only way of controlling and killing the locusts, which is currently being done in Kenya and Ethiopia because they have the resources to do so. But tragically, in most countries in this region, they don't have the right resources. Or in countries like Somalia, it's just too dangerous to enter certain areas because of conflict. And the rate of speed the pests are spreading, the size of the infestation, and the destructive potential is nothing like the Food and Agriculture Organization has seen before. And it's stretched the capacities of the local and national authorities to the limit. And there are now fears that the locusts, already in the hundreds of billions, will multiply even further. And in this particular case, the Food and Agriculture Organization says it's not unfeasible and they have warned that the number of locusts, if unchecked, could grow 500 times by June. And this situation is extremely alarming. They estimated that 70,000 hectares of crops in Kenya had been infested and 30,000 hectares in Ethiopia. And it's also estimated that around 8.5 million Ethiopians and 3.1 million Kenyans already face food insecurity. And nearly 10 million people in the fragile countries in the Horn of Africa are already affected because of the recent floods and the droughts. And according to the Famine Early Network Systems Network, an estimated 72,611 metric tons of cereal crops in 2019 were lost from flooding in South Sudan. And with less harvest to replenish food stocks, they can see them being depleted at a rapid rate. The rights group Save the Children warns, now about 60% of South Sudan is facing food insecurity, and the destruction of harvest by locusts could lead to a drop in the nutrition levels in children. And even without the infestation, it's estimated that more than 1.3 million children under the age of five will suffer from acute malnutrition this year. And the UN has called on the international community to provide funds to help the affected areas in hopes of preventing it from spreading worldwide. And the risk now is in the Horn of Africa, but by summertime could conceivably expand into northern Africa and into southwest Asia. The UN recently raised its aid appeal from $76 million to $138 million in the urgent funding to assist the countries that have been impacted. And so far, $33 million has been pledged or received. And Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, has donated $8 million to help in the funding. And the Farm and Agriculture Organization welcomed a $10 million donation from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to support the tremendous fight against the desert locust upsurge in East Africa, as the U.N. had expanded the aid appeal. The U.N. is urging other donors to follow their lead so farm and agriculture organizations can protect rural livelihoods and assist farmers and their families. Right now is the breeding season, and a new generation of the locusts has been growing up in Somali desert in the recent weeks. 
and there's a narrow window between now and the end of March, depending on the weather conditions. And these next few weeks are critical for mounting effective containment operation. So if the control efforts fail, there will be a massive increase by the end of March that coincides with another planting season. So swarms of desert locusts are likely to reinvade Kenya, Ethiopia, and beyond. This is a dire and desperate situation, and the need for more financial help is urgent. The clock is ticking, and the time is running out. That was Laura Tanner filling us in on the biological crisis that is sort of off most people's radar, but really important. Thank you, Laura. Now let's turn to another biological crisis, the COVID-19 coronavirus that you've probably heard quite a bit about. We're going to play an interview today that was held on February 28, 2020 on the C-SPAN TV channel. It's a call-in show, so you'll start off hearing from a member of the public who's phoned in with a rather emotional question. And answering that question is Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, an epidemiologist at John Hopkins School of Public Health. Dr. Nuzzo is also the director of the Outbreak Observatory, whose goal is to provide an independent and non-governmental source of information about public health crises like this one. The host of this public domain recording is Greta Browner. The Trump administration and blaming the executive branch for this virus that started in another country from them feeding their people rats, beavers, baby wolves. The list goes on and on of things that's being fed to the Chinese people. You can't have 1.5 plus billion people living on top of one another. We've lost 14,000 people, 14,000 in North America from the flu. Let's take that point, Nick. Compare this to the deaths over the flu. Yeah, so I'm obviously very worried about the flu. It is an important contribution to um, severe illness and, and deaths in the United States and a, a frequent cause of hospitalizations, particularly in the, the season that we're in now. So it is absolutely worth being concerned about, and I very much encourage anybody who hasn't already gotten the vaccine to get the vaccine because it is your best chance of not having severe illness and death if, if you're vaccinated. And it will also be helpful if we can reduce the number of flu cases, that's less burden for the hospitals to have to manage. That said, one of the reasons why this virus is getting the attention that it is is not because things like flu aren't deadly, but because there's still an open question as to whether this virus is more deadly than the flu. And just based on the numbers reported to date, it is far more deadly than the flu. Now, I've already said that I think that those numbers are not quite accurate, but that uncertainty is still there and we have to prepare given that uncertainty. The other challenge is that Unlike flu, we don't have the same tools for the coronavirus. So we have very limited ability to test people and diagnose them with the infection, particularly here in the U.S. We don't have a vaccine like we do for the flu. We don't have medicines that we also give for the flu. And so the absence of those tools and the uncertainty make it, I think, essential that we prepare for it. I don't think making this political or placing blame is productive, but nonetheless, I think it's important for us to kind of face what we need to do. And I think your guests really ought to talk about the fact that there's now evidence coming forward that this virus started at that P4 lab 20 miles outside of Wuhan. And we have Fort Detrick up here in Maryland that's a P4 lab. 
This virus is not what uh, the media is saying. It's not just a couple of people who have it in the United States. You don't have any clue what's really going on with this virus, where it originated, how we're supposed to deal with it, and to tell people to wash their hands and uh, don't touch their face and eyes okay. is really... Okay, so Sue, maybe we can take the P4 lab... Yeah, so there's been a lot of chatter, I guess, on the internet about that. Um, I'm not a virologist, but all credible virologists I know and um, people who have looked at the genetic sequence and analyzed the genetic tree, you know, the kind of evolution of the virus have essentially ruled that out. They don't believe that that's a credible hypothesis. So no one I know who studies these issues seriously believes that it originated anywhere other than from some animal. In terms of measures that one can take to protect oneself, I completely understand that when I say wash your hands, that feels very underwhelming. I've got elderly relatives and they've asked me the same thing and I want to be able to say more than that, but I can't. There aren't. In terms of stockpiling N95 masks, that's something that's not recommended. First of all, you need to be fit tested for an N95 mask to to be sure that it's actually going to work for you. And so that's not really something that people can just do themselves generally. Um, And so that's just, just to know that you may think you're protected by something that is actually not going to protect you. And that false sense of confidence that you may get from it could actually put you at more harm. We believe that um, a healthy person wearing a mask is not how masks can protect you. It's potentially better for people who are sick to wear a mask so they don't expel the virus. The other way you could actually be more harmed by something like that is if everybody goes out and gets those masks and they're not there for the healthcare workers who are going to be responsible for, for saving your life, that puts all of us at risk. So I just want to point that out, that we will be better served if we make sure that the doctors and nurses and other health professionals who are going to be putting their lives on the line to save people's lives, we need to make sure that they have the tools they need to be able to do that safely. Hi, I did see one report, and I I have no idea whether it's accurate or not. If it is accurate, it gives me some scares. And that is that if indeed there was at least one person in China who recovered supposedly from this virus and then later tested positive and, you know, came down with it again, if that is indeed true, then that tells me that your immune system did not learn and you're not immune to that same virus anymore. If that's the case, then it tells me that there's a big question as to whether or not a vaccine can mm-hmm. be developed okay, Linda. in your immune system. Jennifer Nuzzo. Yeah, so I know about that report. I think it's hard to make sense of at this point. I think we're going to need more evidence before we can understand what that means and whether that was a purely accurate observation or if there were some testing issues. But that will be an important consideration in the um, ongoing efforts to develop vaccine. And I am heartened that governments and organizations have um, announced intentions to conduct clinical trials. And those clinical trials are going to be really important for providing the evidence that these measures protect and don't do more harm um, in the long run. This is a question from Stephen in um, New Hampshire who wants to know, why does it seem like children have not been affected greatly by this virus? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, it's, I think, one that people are, are wondering about. We saw this during SARS, but I don't think we fully know. It's possible that children are, uh, they do get infected, but that their illnesses are more mild um, and that perhaps um, we see it more in adults because their immune systems react more strongly to the virus, but we don't know. But that said, um, there have now been, just in the the data that it reported of the cases, um, not many children. And also there was a study looking at infants who were hospitalized in China and they didn't find um, much infection either. To me, that's um, encouraging as a mom in particular. 
But also, um, I think it's important for us to think about when we talk about things like closing schools. One of the reasons why we talk about closing schools, it's something that we did for influenza in the 2009 pandemic. And the theory behind that was that one, children potentially could be at risk of having severe outcomes from the flu. But two, children are known to be important drivers of overall community transmission of influenza. So kids get sick and then they give it to um, you know their parents and grandparents. And so the thought was if you could reduce the congregation of children and the ability of children to give the virus to each other, that, that you could reduce overall transmission in the community. It's not clear to me that we're going to have the same benefits from school closures with this virus, given that so few children have been reported among cases. Paul, Charlestown, West Virginia. I see us dancing around a disease that only has one or two percent fatality. I'm curious what you think would happen and how it would proceed if we saw vectors of transmission and fatality rates that, say, occurred in 1348, 49, and 1350 in Europe. The plague, is that what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. Paul? Go ahead. So I I don't think we're worried about that at this point. Um, I think the highest estimates of fatality that have come out so far are from Wuhan, and that's around four, slightly more than 4% of patients. As I said, that's very high in the modern context. The 1918 influenza pandemic, which, as I mentioned, is one of the deadliest disease events in modern history, that had about a 2% case fatality ratio. So if you think about what even 2% means, if you, you know, if, if we think that many, many people on the planet could get this virus just because of the way it spreads and the lack of pre-existing immunity, and you apply 2% to those numbers, those are very high numbers. But I don't believe that 2% is probably an accurate statistic. I, um, think it potentially could be lower, but we need more evidence and our understanding of the virus could change as we gather more evidence. Another reason why I think the 2% might be wrong is that often when we see these events, we tend to bias finding more severe cases because it's harder to find the mild cases. It's also important to understand a challenge, I guess, in in fully extrapolating from Wuhan is that uh, that was where the start of this situation was. And there was some time before maybe it was fully appreciated that this could spread between people and fully appreciated what it was. And so one of the open questions is, as knowledge has improved and as our um, understanding of the need to clinically manage these cases, you know, would we see better outcomes in patients who are hospitalized just as the system trains and, and, and learns about it? Another question is um, whether kind of resource constraints at all um, play a role in the proportion of people who, you know, develop severe illness and ultimately die. You know, how early in the course of somebody's illness people seek care can also uh, play a role. We often talk about proportions of patients who develop severe illness or death as though it's a fixed parameter of a disease or a particular pathogen. And though pathogens do um, have their own contribution to this, these numbers aren't always fixed. So for instance, when we talk about Ebola and the places where we've seen epidemics of Ebola, um, it's a fairly fatal disease with 60 to 70% of the people infected ultimately dying. But when we see Ebola patients treated outside of those settings where there are more medical resources available, many more people um, are able to survive their infection. So it's really important when we think about these numbers to think about what medical resources are being brought to bear to help people come through their infection and to survive. 
We probably know in some cases some of those patients who may have benefited from things like mechanical ventilation may not have gotten it, and so we need to understand what the role of, of those tools are. But nonetheless, I think we have to prepare given the uncertainty, and even if it were 1% or even on the order of the seasonal flu, layering that on top of a health system that's already struggling to keep up with the seasonal flu, which I'm sure as an ER nurse you probably saw that firsthand how tough flu seasons are, and then just think about additionally uh, additional patients coming in seeking care and potentially needing intensive care, that will just be very challenging. And so that's why this virus is, is getting um, the attention that it is. That was Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo of John Hopkins School of Public Health in a public domain interview on C-SPAN TV from February 28, 2020. This is not our first report about the coronavirus. Check out our February 3, 2020 episode to learn more about COVID-19. And it might not be our last report on this evolving problem either. Stay tuned! Well, that's it for this episode of Bench Talk, The Week in Science. Check out our past episodes at our website at forwardradio.org slash bench-talk and hear us live on WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.